We are live. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar of July series, and the series is entitled Le Learning and Leading in a Connected World. Uh, and if you're watching this, please take a moment to share it with your networks. I'm Maha Bailey. I'm an associate professor of practice at the American University in Cairo in Egypt. And along with my friend Sam Sharma, I'm hosting today's session. And I'm really excited to be talking to a really wonderful group of open scholars, uh, Jesse Stommel, Laura Gogia, Alan Levine, Suzanne, whose last name I can't pronounce, <laughs> and Mia Zamora, and Rebecca Hogue. Hi, um, welcome to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar of July series, and the series is entitled... And I'm hearing my own echo. Is everybody else hearing it as well? Please take a moment to share it with your networks. I'm Maha Bailey. Mm. I'm, I'm going to go ahead with this and then mute myself later because and I'm really excited I can't log out right now. Um, but um, we're going to be using two hashtags, hashtag connected learning and hashtag CLMOOC. Um, and you can ask questions through the hashtag or the Q&A feature in your video player or inside the actual Google Hangout. Uh, the webinar is uh, co-streamed with the National Writing Projects Educator Innovator.org. Um, and also part of CL MOOC, uh, a MOOC about connected learning. Um, I, the topic of today was inspired by a blog post by Suzanne, and so I'm going to ask people to introduce themselves in reverse, chron reverse alphabetical order. Uh, so we'll start with uh, Suzanne uh, and go backwards, okay? Um, with you today. So um, my name is Suzanne and um, I'm a PhD candidate in learning technologies at the University of Minnesota. Um, but I was telling the group earlier that today um, I'm not here with my um, PhD identity. I just want to be seen as, a, as an adult learner, as a connected learner online. Um, so yes, so that's um, all about me for now. Thank you. Who's next? Um, I'll go next. Oh, okay. Sorry. Uh, um, I'm Mia Zamora. Um, I'm the director of the Kane University Writing Project and also the Masters in Writing Studies in English um, at Kane University, which is in New Jersey. Um, I've also had the pleasure of facilitating two connectivist MOOCs, um, connective courses, and also uh, the CL MOOC, Connective Learning MOOC, that's happening right now. Um, and I'm just very interested in the conversation we'll have today. Thanks for inviting me. And I think I'm next. Um, I'm Laura Gogia. I am the Graduate Fellow at Academic Learning Transformation Center, um, or Laboratory. can't even remember the name of where I work. <laughs> Um, but Alt Lab at Virginia Commonwealth University. And I am here as the founder of Twitter, Twitter Journal Club, um, which I think we're going to talk about a little later. Alan? Fumbling for my mic. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Alan Levine. Uh, typically, I'm calling from my home in Arizona, but right now I'm in uh, Guadalajara, Mexico on a project I might talk about later. Uh, I'm, what the heck am I? I'm so tired from today's <laughs> workshops. Um, but I've been involved with um, 
many connectivist MOOCs, uh, DS106 is my heart and home, uh, but I've crossed paths and connected courses with everyone else. I'm just kind of a web-loving jockey and uh, advocate of openness and um, just like to be a goofball on the internet. Um, I'll go next. I'm Jesse Stommel, and I am uh, an assistant professor of digital humanities at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I am also the founder and director of Hybrid Pedagogy, a digital journal of learning, teaching, and technology. Um, I have played around in MOOCs for quite a while. Uh, I launched a MOOC with my colleague Sean Michael Morris in 2012, which was called MOOC MOOC, a massive open online course about massive open online courses. And I've got lots of other little here's and there's that I can talk about today. Uh, we'll see what comes up. This next me, uh -huh. Hi, um, this is Sam Sarma. Um, I'm an assistant professor of writing and rhetoric at Stony Brook University, part of the State University of New York. I am originally from Nepal. And I do a little bit of work with my colleagues back in Nepal through open scholarship and trying to create and um, foster some new spaces where uh, colleagues across borders can publish in these alternative spaces uh, without having to win over the central, uh, you know, the, the uh, the publication mechanisms of the global centers. And I am really looking forward to learning a lot more from this conversation today. Okay. And Rebecca, last introduction. Yeah. Okay. Mute. There we go. Um, I'm Rebecca Hogue. Um, I currently live in sunny Santa Clara, California, where it's always sunny and we could use some rain. Um, I'm an unaffiliated scholar, so uh, yeah, unaffiliated at the moment. Hopefully, we'll be back at University of Ottawa shortly. And I am co-founder of Virtually Connecting, um, connecting uh, with Maha and with others at conferences. Great. So um, just before we start each talking about uh, the things that we're doing, there's obviously a lot of overlap between all of us over here. So, you know, Laura founded TJC15, but a lot of us have participated in it. Jesse is the co-founder of Hybrid Pedagogy, and a lot of us are involved in that. A lot of us were involved in MOOCs in different ways. So it's not that each one of us has never done the thing that everyone else has done. We've actually, most of us, done everything. But each of us will just highlight one of the things that they do that they pioneered or worked really well with. Um, and uh, like I said, this was inspired by Suzanne. So I want Suzanne to sort of kickstart this by talking about uh, technologies of emergence, which she's been interested in talking about for a while. Um, and then we could start each just talking about how our work is open scholarship and why it's an emerging uh, trend, why it's a technology of emergence. And then we'll take questions from Twitter and from each other, of course, if you like. So Suzanne, go ahead. Sure, yeah. Thanks, Maha. So I guess the... Um, the question that pops up in my mind is that um, are these technologies of emergence, like can we talk about these tools as technologies of emergence? So hopefully um, we'll talk about that today also. Um, so it's, it's, it's a bit difficult to talk about it because it's a very, um, it's such a rich concept and it's something that I came across um, during ET4 Online um, in April and uh, Gardner Campbell, he talked about this in his plenary talk on um, thought vectors and concept space. And um, I think it's one of the, it's the first MOOC that Virginia Commonwealth University designed. Um, 
I hope Laura <laughs> will, will give you some information about that too. Um, but yes, yeah, so he talked about that in his plenary talk and I was fascinated by it. Um, so how do how do I start um, you know describing that? Um, it's, it's a little difficult as I said before, but I think um, it will be helpful to talk about emergent technologies and then compare that to technologies of emergence um, because although they sound very similar, there are fundamental differences between the two. Um, so emergent technologies, that is something that is um, often talked about in educational um, research and you know, in, in uh, learning technologies in my field. And um, mainly it can be anything new or old. Uh, so think about Twitter, Facebook, um, um, mobile phones. So these are the tools that have potential and these are the tools um, that have um, unfulfilled potential, right? Uh, so we can do so many things with these tools, but we don't know how to use them maybe. Maybe they haven't become um, mainstream or maybe there is resistance to using these tools in, in classes, okay? Um, so on the other hand, um, the technology of technologies of emergence, when we talk about that, um, the focus changes from the technology to what's happening as a result of that technology, right? So the focus is all about, you know, um, learning, um, the nature of learning, the, the quality, maybe the nature of learner experience and so on. Um, so basically, the way I see it, and uh, we can talk about this too, you know, this is my interpretation based on Gardner Campbell's talk. The way I see it is um, technologies of emergence um, are the types of tools that create space for learning and um, create space for learning, but to happen in messy ways, in unpredictable ways. Um, so, for example, um, a very personal example, for me, this Google Hangout um, is a technology of emergence because um, I have many, you know, barriers to participate in, in conferences and face-to-face -face conferences and so on because I have a young daughter, um, but now I can be pres present online with you. Um, so for me, this is an opportunity and it really allows me a space, uh, you know, to learn something new. Um, so yes, so this is, the, this is the basic argument. I hope I was clear about this. Um, but I guess, um, yeah, the, the, the one thing I'm really curious exploring in exploring is, um, you know, tying this all to, to open scholarship and the things we're going to be talking about today, um, can we talk about, for example, Twitter Journal Club um, as a technology technology of emergence or um, connected MOOCs or um, Ellen Hill talk about initiatives he's involved in. So can we talk about these tools as technologies of emergence? And if so, um, what is the significance of that? Um, I'm going to go next. Um, I'm thanks. That's a great introduction to um, I think all, what we're all going to talk about, hopefully. And um, interestingly, as you were talking, I changed a lot of the things I was going to say because you know it, it exactly as you're remarking. This is a space of emergence where even as you're talking, I'm having my ideas. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about hybrid pedagogy, the journal that I run. And the thing that I really want to say about it that fits in with what you were talking about so eloquently is this idea that 
I really I started this thing not because I wanted to start a journal. It was never I never wanted to be a journal editor when I grew up. I actually had this vision when I was a kid of of running my own school when I when I grew up. I um my mom was in graduate school and I was about six or eight I think I was eight years old and she would want me to stay up with her late at night while she did all of her homework for graduate school and I would take all of her textbooks and I would pile them up in a stack and I didn't actually know what was inside of them but I would design little syllabi um, from using my mom's textbooks. So I had this vision early on that I wanted to, it wasn't just about learning, it was about figuring out how to organize learning. And um, when I started and launched hybrid pedagogy, in my brain what I was launching wasn't a journal, in my brain what I was launching was actually a school. It was a place for a community to form having a conversation around pedagogy and around learning. And, um, and so essentially one of the things that was really important for me right from the start was to have the journal's formation be pedagogical. For the journal to form in a way that fit with my pedagogy, and my pedagogy is all about peer-driven learning, and my pedagogy is all about um, emergence, and all about sort of creating a frame and then allowing things, allowing the people inside of that frame to improvise and, and feed off of one another so that you never know what something's going to become until it's in that moment of becoming. And so for me, starting the journal, I didn't know what it was at the start. And we actually launched it. Um, I launched it with a close colleague of mine, Pete Roraba, and also worked very early on with the, my current co-director, Sean Michael Morris. But we launched it before we really knew what it was and before we could describe what it was. So the idea being that we brought the readers and the people who were engaging with the stuff that we put there into the process of helping us determine what it was. We knew that we were going to have some kind of peer review, but we didn't know what peer review we were going to have. And we, in fact, wanted to push on the idea of what peer review even was. And so for us to determine in advance how we would peer review articles didn't seem right. So instead, we just figured it out as we go went along. And there's a way in which that has become the ethic of the journal, to always be figuring itself as it goes along. Always be figuring itself out as it goes along so that we just brought on 10, 11 new um, peer reviewers, 10, 11 new, I think 11. We just brought on 11 new editors, and the idea was that these editors would continue to help us figure out what the journal was. Not that well, there was a way in which bringing them on, we told them, here's what the journal is. Here's why it was formed. But there was another piece that bringing these 11 people into the fold was really about letting these voices help us to continue to shape what it might become. And on any given day, we, haven't, we still haven't decided what it is. I was just having a conversation with Sean, um, my co-director, where we were basically like, wait, maybe it's actually this and not the thing we had thought it was all along. Um, and so that, that sense of figuring out who I am as a scholar and constantly doing that and also being engaged with other scholars who are in the midst of that considering of what they even are and who they're going to become. That's a really important piece of this for me. Um, so I think I'm going to pass it off to Laura now. All right. So, um, wow, Jesse, Laura. that was Sorry. that was really <laughs> <Go ahead>. cool. <laughs> I just knew that I was going to. So, um, as Maha said, uh, I am uh, the founder of Twitter Journal Club, or hashtag TJC15, and what that is is a monthly, synchronous, live tweeting journal event. Um, so what happens is for about an hour, people get together, and it, it's open 
and it just runs under the hashtag TJC15, and we read an article together. Um, some people read the article in advance and live tweet different parts of it. Other people haven't gotten a chance to read in advance, and so they're actually reading as we go along. Um, there are no discussion questions set. There is no agenda um, other than we look at this article that's been predetermined by the group. We actually have a, a Google form where you submit um, articles that you're interested in reading um, and we go in order. Um, but, you know, the way all, all of this started was that uh, this idea of tweeting while you read an article is the way um, that I, as a PhD student, deal with um, scholarly writing. So when I read a journal article, I would live tweet it for a lot of reasons. I found that it kept me focused. I, I found that I reflected on the different nuggets that I found as I, I read the article. I All I knew is that it worked for me. So when Jesse is talking about this idea of always figuring out what's going on, um, when I started this, I, I had no idea why this worked or what it meant or its implications for other people. Um, it's just other people. Suzanne was actually the the one who saw it happen, and she said it was interested, and and said, "Why don't you know? Why don't you organize something that I want to join too?" I mean, so all of this started um, with Suzanne, and it's really funny because uh, we all have those sort of interconnections throughout this entire group, which I, I find really interesting. Um, but it's something that um, Twitter Journal Club has progressed as we, we go along. We're figuring things out. We, we all try different things each time and reflect on um, what it means to, to read a journal article. And as hybrid pedagogy is challenging peer review, I feel like we're challenging what it means to read a journal article. Um, what's the purpose? What are the objectives of uh, reading scholarly work? Um, because the way what you get out of Twitter Journal Club is a lot different than what you would get out of a traditional journal club. And we're all sort of working through that, both individually and together. And I think, I don't know who's supposed to go next. Um, can I ask a quick follow-up question? I made it myself earlier. I was going to ask this question to Jesse, but then it seems connected with your Laura's question as uh, discussion as well. Um, you. Um, uh, 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 who used the term uh, emergence, technology of emergence? I, I forgot the name of the colleague. Was that was that. Suzanne. Suzanne, <laughs> yes. Um, Suzanne yes. used the term uh, technologies of emergence, and Jesse um, brought up issues of open scholarship. And I was wondering how those two terms may be interrelated. Uh, one is, has to more, do more with technology, and I think the other one has is a much broader, much much broader term. And then I was also wondering what Jesse, um, and as an editor of Hybrid Pedagogy, has uh, might have to say about the co-optation of the idea of open scholarship by completely non-open uh, regimes, um, and what we do about that, both from a reader's perspective, you see that we can't access much material, and from writers' perspectives that we can't really write much. Well, I'm going to turn it over to the group in just a second, but one, one thing I did want to mention um, based on your question mm. is for me, technology is actually a really broad term. Mm. Um, I tend to use it in the same way that Doug Engelbart talks about it mm. as far as it not just being tools, um, but things like language, approaches, orientations, philosophies. So when people say technologies of emergence, like I consider connected learning 
um, as a um, learning philosophy, a learning orientation, um, I consider that a technology of emergence. Um, so my definition of technology is actually broader than scholarship. Um, but that was that was the only point I wanted to make. I'm sure there are other people who could speak better to open um, yeah, the open thing scholarship. That, the thing that I wanted to add just is that a lot of the philosophies that run behind under the current of hybrid pedagogy are really the technology is kind of a red herring. There's a way in which technology enables certain things, like Twitter has been a really big part of hybrid pedagogy's evolution. Um, in various different ways, and we often do we well, we do all of our peer reviewing and peer editing inside of Google Docs, and there's something about interacting inside of a Google Doc that it feels very different from sending someone a a, a Microsoft document with track changes, for example. And so the technology enables something certainly, but it wasn't the technology in a way is a red herring. The, the it's actually the philosophy and the pedagogy that underlies that was possible prior to the technology, but what we're doing is constantly finding new technologies that essentially we are using as devices to enable this stuff. And I think what happens often with open pedagogy, open scholarship, is they think somehow if you put it inside of a quote-unquote open flat platform, that all of a sudden you'll have an open process or an open scholarship or an open pedagogy. When in fact you can't just take, for example, traditional high-stakes high tests and throw it into an open platform, an open source platform, and somehow imagine that that could be an open pedagogy. I'm actually <coughs> hand this over now to Al <coughs> because I think he's probably a whiz on all of this. And that's where you're wrong, Jesse. I'm huh? a whiz at nothing. I make all this up. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I really appreciated uh, Suzanne's uh, phrasing, and, and I've known Gardner for a long time, and I've heard him talk about this, but uh, it, it was really crystal clear, and the funny thing is, I don't get it because this is like the only internet I've known, and there have been people writing about webs that have been lost and the way we have sort of lost the spirit of the web, and um, to me it's still there, and it's in the magic of uh, these people in this room, Maha, who I've never met, but we I consider her a close friend. We've exchanged very personal things by DMs, and so a lot of what I'm interested in are these things where... Um, our humanness comes through and above the technology. And what, what Jesse and Laura described are some of my favorite things. When people take something that exists as this stone-cold technology and they just reimagine what it could do um, in a different purpose. And so it's not taking an LMS and putting it on a mobile platform and saying, oh, we're doing mobile learning um, as a different sort of media. So um, the project I'm on right now, I am in Guadalajara, Mexico. And the University of Guadalajara is a huge system. It's about 150, 200,000 students, 8 to 10,000 faculty all over Jalisco. And with a large amount of money from the government, they are supporting this faculty development project where 300 faculty um, have been given an iPad. And it's not about the iPad, but the focus is on student-centered learning and encouraging these faculty to consider mobile learning as one vehicle. So. Yes, they have the iPads, and we're doing these activities, but it's not about iPad training. And everything we're doing is totally this emergent training. So we have a, a week with 150 faculty each, and we're doing some of these intensive hands-on. We call them studios um, because people come in, and we have a very basic framing activity. 
I'm doing one on some basic audio recording and sharing with SoundCloud. Um, Brian Lamb is doing something on um, use, creating silly memes. And so a lot of this at its surface is not directly applicable um, to teaching. And so we're immersing faculty for a week. And what I love about this design for the project is we're building the community at the same time. So Twitter's not a big thing here in Mexico, but we're throwing them into Twitter. Um, and they're, going, they're seeing its power when they're together face to face. Uh, what I like about this project is it's not one of these faculty development where you come in, you do this blitz, and then you leave. So um, starting in mid-August, there'll be an eight-week component where uh, we will have an online version of our community, and the faculty then are supposed to be figuring out how they're going to integrate this into their class. Mm -hmm. And their mission that they're being driven with is they have to do implement at least two new strategies, so it's not just a text. Some of the thing is collaborative learning or scenario-based learning. And by December, when we convene again in person, they have to present their work, and they have to present students' evaluation of the things that they've done. Um, so I like that this faculty development has created this whole arc of um, a strategy to sort of infuse some ideas for technology. There's huge challenges here in terms of what's available, what support, what the students have, what the faculty have, et cetera. Um, but everything we do is almost, um, we're inventing it the night before it feels like often, although there is, has been some planning. And I'm bringing in a lot of the affordances and some things that um, I've developed for DS106 and Connected Learning. And I have to say, you know, we are throwing so much at these faculty and they are not giving up. I've seen a lot of workshops where faculty get overwhelmed, like I can't do all this technology. And the ones we're working with here, um, already by the end of the first day, they, they've got the social media down. They've got how to fill out the forms that we're asking to fill on the iPad. They're already creating media. They're already interconnecting with the students that are last week. And so this is total emergent learning uh, that, we, that we're trying to engender here. Um, because with these technologies, the, the rate of change is so incredible that we can't teach technology. So we're basically teaching people how to muddle through the first phases so they get the confidence and skills uh, to continue. I, th I, th I just wanted to add something that I was thinking about at this point. We've been talking about emergent learning and I think one element of the idea of emergence is you don't know what's going to come up. It's all about the unexpected and leaving the space for the unexpected, which is also something that it's exciting, that's the most obvious point, you know, to sort of leave space for what's possible, not knowing exactly what's going to emerge. But then one other aspect of that is that it's threatening, like, oh God, what's going to happen? Is it all going to fall apart? Am I going to mess this up? Am I not going to do it right? So I thought I would sort of um, wax reflective for a few minutes about the idea of taking risks and how that how important it is to take risks at this point in time as we sort of shift towards new models for both scholarship and teaching and learning. So um, a couple of accounts in that regard. I, I've, I've taken some risks and I've, I've been pretty scared along the way that it wouldn't work out, but ultimately I've always um, been rewarded by things that I've learned that I didn't expect to learn. Um, as an example of that, I, I taught this writing, uh, this course called Writing, Race, and Ethnicity in the Spring of this past semester. I had a group of both um, advanced undergraduate and graduate students 
who came to the course, any student who's coming to the course writing race and ethnicity, is thinking about the current issues of our day and um, these vexing issues of how we communicate around race, etc. And they came to the course, you know, expecting the usual, right? Um, a syllabus, particular readings, some kind of protocol protocol for how to prove their knowledge, the gaining of their knowledge. And I thought to myself, that just doesn't seem appropriate in this context. I, I really hope that they might have the space to identify what they want to learn. So I, you know, I jumped off the cliff, so to speak, and I said, what do you guys want to learn? I haven't made a syllabus. I haven't made a list of learning outcomes because I think it's time for you to be in charge of your own learning outcomes within this opportunity. Of course, students need scaffolding to get to a place of understanding what it is they want to do ultimately. But with a, and I, you know, I, I've written about that scaffolding process, etc. But I, I just want to share out that there was this amazing transformative experience that we all had together, wherein this class was able to make their learning matter to them in ways that they never force they never could expect within an academic context. And some of the comments that came out of the class were things like, this is the most important work I've ever done in a schooling context. And I think that that was possible partially because I was thinking about learning beyond the four walls that we existed in. And that beyond the four walls business was facilitated by technology. So we always had a back channel, a Twitter channel, which was a conversation that was ongoing, whether it be in person or outside of classroom time. We always um, reached out and tried to, tried to communicate with others outside of the classroom. And another important thing, an important moment, is they decided that they were going to run a MOOC of their own, that they wanted to sort of create a learning experience for anyone out there in the world who wanted to go on a journey with them. So I think that's just a small case study in what's possible when you sort of take risks in an open learning context. Um, just one other comment uh, that I wanted to shift gears and, and talk for a minute about CL MOOC, the Connected Learning MOOC. One of the things in the design of, of that experience is that we wanted to lead out with the making not with the theory around learning, but with the, act, the activity of making in a creative way. And what was so amazing and continues to be amazing about the CL MOOC experience is that the spirit of remix and the playfulness around sort of riffing off others in the end is sort of the, the, gluey, the glue or the, the sticking power of the possibility of learning within community. So I've learned so much from these experiences but I guess I just wanted to throw in my hat to sort of emphasize that this moment in time, I think, requires risk-taking, and that risk-taking, um, you know, is in tandem in some ways with the sort of possibilities that are lent via technology. And also that making together is a really powerful experience in thinking about um, both scholarship and learning. Um, I've been trying to write with my students more often in informal and peer-reviewed ways, and I think that's also an empowering experience. Um, but at any rate, I think Rebecca wants to throw her hat in the ring at this point, too. Thanks, Mia. Um, for, I sort of want to riff a little bit off of what Mia had said earlier um, about leaving space for the unexpected. Um, 
and I want to chat a little bit about Virtually Connecting, um, which is a little project that uh, Ma and I started as a result of her being unable to attend at ET for Online. Um, and in that, we actually brought in, um, I, I used my phone most of the time, sometimes my iPad, and did some video conferencing. And I got to meet actually a bunch of people here for the first time at ET for Online as a result of that connection. So that was sort of an interesting experience being the person on the ground, but also um, connecting and helping helping others connect. Um, and so just a comment on virtually connecting, our goal there is to try and, and change the conference experience and bring it beyond so that the virtual people have a chance to actually feel free to be there. Um, I also wanted to, to speak a little bit on the technology is red herring thing um, because I actually disagree with that statement. Um, I think that the technology has changed to a point that it's enabled this. I think six, you know, two years ago we didn't have the LTE cellular in our pocket technology to be able to join a Google Hangout from anywhere at any time. We just, it wasn't, the technology wasn't there. It, it, it wasn't ready for us. So people who've tried video conferencing um, in the past and didn't have success, partially that lack of success is because the technology, you know, the ideas may have been before their time. And so I want to throw out there that technology, um, the technology is an important part that we shouldn't just black box and throw out and say it's only about the processes. It is about the processes, but it is also about the technology. Um, and then the other thing I wanted to riff off of and throw everyone um, out there is when I introduced myself as unaffiliated, somebody tweeted something there. Um, and I think Alan also might have used, I don't know if he used that term, but he, he mentioned it as well. Um, and I want to challenge the bio. Um, and I'll throw this one over to Jesse as well because I actually tagged in my blog post the other day because I thought about it for the first time, publishing something in hybrid pedagogy and then being asked to fill out a bio that says, I am this person at this institution with this position. And how that, in and of itself, to me, feels like it's 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 promoting the thing that we're trying to not promote with open scholarship. And so I want to throw that out there of challenging the bio. Um, okay, I'll say something about that really fast. Um, I actually think that's a great. I, ultimately, I think that it really is about marking your putting your mark on putting your mark on the web and i think that more often more and more often our mark on the web is not about us i mean the people in this row oftentimes what we're doing is trying to carve out space for other people carve out space for each other carve out space for our learners and so i think that i i like the idea of pushing on the bio from a very practical perspective and this is something that we can sort of push on but something that in a way in order to get rid of the bio, get rid of that sort of self inside of our scholarship, I think we also have to address the sort of practical concern of how someone gets credit for their work. And oftentimes, people get credit for their work at their institution only if their institution's name is on the work because, they're, you know, search engines go out there and crawl the internet like they do and they look for references to that particular institution. And I've seen and heard of people not getting credit for their work if their institutional home is not listed on the work at when it's published. Um, interestingly, it suggests that your work doesn't count if you don't have an institutional home. And I think that that's, you know, that's false. And in fact, there's a way in which 
we all work and operate in a very different kind of home. We work and operate in a home that doesn't look like the kind of institutional home that, that the University of Wisconsin-Madison is. Um, and so thinking about what it is to have a home, where that home is, how we make a mark inside of it, and also thinking how we push back on the very practical concerns of will my work count if my institution isn't listed on it. So it's a good, it's a good um, challenge. There is a question from Terry, I think, and uh, Maha, are you um, going to share the question for us? Yes, I think this is a question from Terry that was asking, what new conditions and which existing conditions create the most open trends in open scholarship? So who wants to answer that one? I actually have a, a response to that, but I want to uh, listen to other colleagues who have already talked about other issues to connect to that question. I'll, I'll you know, somehow connect to that later, unless. Well, I think we've already touched on the concept of leaving things open. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah, just leaving things um, open so that the unexpected can occur. Uh, the idea of walking into a class and asking the students in the class what is it that you want to learn uh, and then structuring things from there. Uh, that allowed both openness and emergence. Uh, the idea of setting up a journal club uh, where there are no preset expectations uh, but people come in and say one thing in the article that they liked and then suddenly other people are jumping on and they're going in their own pathway uh, which oftentimes does not dig into the article but rather jumps from the article um, into a completely different pathway so that um, other learning points um, emerge so I, I think the idea uh, as trite as it sounds to say openness, uh, but just just the idea of, of not having a set endpoint, um, but, but but rather coming in with curiosity um, and asking questions. Um, it's almost like uh, the cartoon Phineas and Ferb, if you guys have ever seen that, where they ask at the beginning of the cartoon, what, what do you want to do today? Um, and then really interesting things emerge from there. Um, so that that to me is is uh, openness, you know, uh, receptivity, um, caring uh, about the opinions and perceptions and place of the other people in the room, either like literally a room or the virtual space. Um, curiosity is a big part of it. Um, here, here, and and sometimes it's all this like. I share my stuff, I put Creative Commons on all my stuff, you can download all my stuff for free. I mean, that's only a small part of the openness, as, as Laura's suggesting. A lot of it's about being active and listening in other people's spaces and participating in this in, in a conversational matter. And, and you know, this, I love the stories of serendipity, that's part of my, one of my hobbies is, is collecting them that happen by accident because of these connections. Um, and um, you can't really, the only thing I can say, I say to people like, I can't guarantee you if you become an open educator, someone's going to offer you a trip to speak somewhere or they're going to become this writing colleague that you're going to publish work together. Um, the only thing I can promise you is if you never share anything, you will never have any amazing serendipity happen to you. So in a way, it's, it's, it's as corny as creating your own like um, 
karma of gratitude um, and without the expectation that, that something will happen. And, and again, that's, that is such a human thing um, that, that I think, you know, how do we forget all that stuff? It's like, it's like what we know in elementary school on the playground. Yeah, and to, to build on that for just one second, you know, you said putting the Creative Commons license on it um, isn't necessarily enough, and I found that to be the case because I, I wrote up this list of, of um, you know, different ways to enjoy Twitter uh, for uh, better learning, and I put a Creative Commons license on it, of course, but I put it in a platform where it wasn't easy for people to alter it, so I said, you know, sure, you can alter it, no problem. I want people to use it in their own context and alter it, but I originally put it in a place where they had to download it as a PDF, which, of course, you can't really alter. So, see, that didn't work very well. So, you kind of have to go the next step. You, you not only have to say, yes, I want you to use this and alter it, but you have to make it possible for them to actually alter it. Um, mm -hmm. So, you have to take the next step. Um, I just wanted to add quickly to what you're, you're all saying, which I, I really appreciate. Um, I'm, I'm hearing that there's both the like kind of spirit of generosity that's so much a part of being an open learner and an open scholar, and I'm also hearing that there should be um, an ethos of attribution and respect for other people's work that's carried forward so that we can all do this work in an open environment and still have a sense of, you know, um, places of origin and where ideas are furthered, etc. I just wanted to sort of echo that out. Can I quickly build on what uh, Laura? Sorry, go ahead. Finish that thought. Sorry, Shayam. I just um, I just wanted to add something um, to it. So. I don't think open scholarship is limited to um, online platforms only. So if, if it is an attitude, then you can have openness without the, um, you know, the online technology, without the digital technology. That also limits, um, I blogged about this recently, so that also limits the possibilities of uh, um, openness, open scholarship, open education, um, mm -hmm. because um, you know, we don't know what's happening in other countries. Like in Burkina Faso, we don't know what's, I, I don't know what's happening there. Mm -hmm. in, um, you know, Turkey and other countries. So we need to talk, and we need to think, I guess, more globally and think about, you know, all these different contexts, um, resources to online technologies and, you know, so on. So what happens to those people, you know, what happens, what, how do they engage in open scholarship? And that's another question that we should be asking, I think. Wow. Uh, Suzanne, you almost said everything that I was going to say, but I'll try to add something. Um, <laughs> um, I was going to add to what Laura was saying about generos generosity, emergence, not just about technology. A lot of colleagues have said a lot of things that I wanted to build on, and uh, Suzanne, you just talked about context. Um, around 2009, with two colleagues um, who had originally come from the home country, uh, the same country, Nepal, that I came from, um, one in Hawaii, one in London, one in Kentucky, wanted to start sharing ideas and sort of blurring the boundary between our day-to-day um, -day scholarly conversation and the scholarship in academic journals and so forth, of which we didn't have many in the first place. And we were not from the outside world, from the global periphery, we're not able to publish a lot in the global centers, even though we belong to a global community of English language teachers, but we didn't have the access. 
because if you think about it, there's technological uh, uh, barrier. There is a barrier of so-called quality. I call I say so-called because it is quality defined by somebody at the global centers, not quality in terms of relevance and significance. Quality for people who are engaged. Quality for people uh, who see value. It's quality as defined by a process, as defined by power, as defined by um, the interest of a particular group or a particular region, right? And so we wanted to blur those boundaries and we started actually taking some of our email conversation into a blog. And then the blog became a magazine. And we had a tremendous success with that. And um, I actually invited those, some of those, my colleagues from the, um, the ELT, English Language Teaching Forum from Nepal to join us today. I hope they're listening and I hope they can also post questions here. Um, but the, it, it involved a lot more than technology. It involved its generosity. It involved trying to challenge existing frameworks and existing uh, structures of power. It involved um, uh, uh, writing in bad English but sharing good ideas. I say quote-unquote bad because they're considered bad because we don't speak the same English, right? Um, and and the, the, the willingness to co cross context and connect to people beyond the uh, traditional uh, domains. And that posed two kinds of challenges also. I don't only blame the people at the global centers who have these um, quality control mechanism of, of, of gatekeeping mechanisms. It, it is also the same thing locally because people um, in many different cultures have barriers of age, barriers of you know, class and caste sometimes, barriers of language and culture, and minorities. Women don't have access to the things that men have. And so we were willing to challenge, we were willing to uh, question, we were willing to um, engage with that power structure, we are willing to take risks. And I think it goes beyond technology. Uh, when we talk about openness, we are talking about a lot of things. I said too many things, but I, I hope I, I'm adding something here. I want to hear from other uh, colleagues about how we cross borders, how we transcend limitations, how we encourage others, how we mentor each other, and how we uh, disrupt the so-called uh, regimes of quality, the so-called regimes of um, um, professionalism. As they sound really good, nice terms, but they're not. They're mean. They're ungenerous. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. I think I just a real brief comment. I have found um, one of the reasons why I knew that I, you know, I at the start of hybrid pedagogy, there was a point in its germination where it actually functioned more like a group blog than a peer-reviewed journal. Mm -hmm. We actually pushed it slightly away from the group blog, although we've kept a lot of what's lovely about group blogs, mm -hmm. uh, linking to each other, conversation uh, pieces that are in conversation with each other. We pushed it a little bit towards peer review, uh, more making it more peer-reviewed in part because I had had such horrible, horrible experiences with peer review, and I had had so many colleagues who had had horrible experiences with peer review. Mm. And I have colleagues who have had horrible experience with peer review, but still will defend peer review. And mm. I actually find it violent in a lot of cases. I mm. find that it does violence to the people who are trying to work within it. And, in and when you're working inside of that kind of system, sure, mm -hmm. the ideas become legitimized. But if the ideas are legitimized but also, like, harmed by the time that they're actually put out into the world, yeah. those aren't good ideas. It's like cooking. The meal might taste good, but if the person that cooked it was miserable and crying when they were cooking it, there's mm -hmm. no love in that food. Like, I want oh, my yeah. scholarship to have love in it. 
And that's the way you get love in it, by having love in it right from the start. Um, and so finding ways that we can bring that in, I think, is really important. Can I add quickly, I just link, added a link to, an art, the, to a blog post that I wrote kind of theorizing what it means that we're able to engage hundreds of scholars, th uh, thousands of comments, about five to six hundred blog posts by people that had never dreamed that they would write in English for a global audience in a tiny country the size of our Iowa between China and India. So I, I have written about it in a very emotional, almost emotional way in that blog post that I just shared. I'm going to ask Liana to share it on the site. Uh, another Tawson, because Mia also talked about risk-taking, and risk-taking sounds like you're taking dangerous risk, or and I know she didn't necessarily mean that. Um, I, I have a practice that I will colloquially call screwing up in public uh, that I just seem to do naturally, and it makes such a difference to your students. The problem is not messing up. The problem is failing to make a recovery. Mm -hmm. and my colleague that I'm working with here in, in Mexico, my dear friend Nancy White, is has this, she has two things, that she, at least, that I want to bring to you. She talks about this idea of confusiasm. That's the mixture of you're putting a lot of people into a confusing space with new strategies, new technologies, but you maintain a spirit of enthusiasm, and so people don't get brought down when they're challenged by the techniques. And so it, they made it into a Spanish word, confusiasmo. That was brilliant. She has another thing that she says she calls the failure bell. So when you're in the front of the room and the technology doesn't work or you know you say something that's wrong and someone corrects you, we just stop and we say, I'm taking a failure bow. And people just see that you're human. And, and I worry a lot about, um, in, when we talk about academic and scholarly activity, this um, perception of not having any faults and needing to be perfect, which of course we know is not true, but I think it's what prevents a lot of people um, for, from even making these small things. Uh, so, you know, and I think, you know, the smaller the, the risk you take, and that meaning that doesn't have any essential uh, risk like you're risking your academic career, but if you just mess up in public once in a while, it's a very healthy thing. Maha, would you, I just wanted to ask you to add. Um, I, I was actually just going to add something very quickly about, oh, I love what Alan's talking about, and he had a very interesting blog post about this uh, this messing up in public thing. But, I mean, speaking of messing up and of doing things in public is that one of the threads coming across all of what we've been talking about is how what we're doing is sort of a subversion of, of something in a current system that we were that an inequality or something we were angry about, you know, angry about the way peer review is done, about the way journal clubs treat academics, about the way scholarship is unfair and unbalanced towards the West, and, and so on. So, um, and then having this open attitude of opening yourself up to what seems to be a big risk, right? You're, you're opening up all of this uh, dissenting discourse that we're doing, and how that sort of works. In, in, in the midst of all those systems that are actually closed and much more rigid. Um, so I thought that was an interesting thread coming across the conversation. We've only got a few minutes left to go, um, but Rebecca wanted to say something. Um, and then if anybody else has any lasting, you know, parting words that they would like to say before we close this out. So, um, Rebecca? Okay. Um, I just wanted to sort of verif actually on something that Maha just said, so kind of interesting. Um, and that is sort of the, the in order to really be open and to work in sort of the worlds that we do, um, international worlds, is to 
one of the things that we need to look at is is having an appreciative understanding of different cultures. Um, because in order to understand where the power structures are, we need to understand a little bit about what these other cultures are. And so, you know, we can say that we're doing we're to really appreciate how Western some of the ideas are, we need to better understand the non-Western cultures um, that we're trying to interact with. Mm. We still have some time. Uh, we have five minutes. Uh, we only. Do else want to add anything? Thoughts, ideas. Uh, no questions. On I'll Twitter. just throw in a kind of part. Uh, I can just throw in parting comment. I really love the idea of I don't want to eat food that isn't cooked with love. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I think about I think about the idea that. I, I in the in the in the um, private chat I said well said Jesse my dissertation felt like I was crawling through an arid desert and I still can't believe I'm alive <laughs> and it was a long time ago uh, but I, but I I really don't want to wage that kind of torture on the students that teach me so much today and. I'm thinking right now about the issue of hierarchy in academia. I'm sort of on the other end of it and, and past a tenure gate, and so now I can sort of do what I always yearn to do, and thank God that I'm able to do it, and I, I feel like it's such a blessing. But how can we change the system so that doesn't, you don't have to crawl and be tortured and get through things in order to be able to open up things so that um, voices of all different kinds can ask certain kinds of questions that leads to certain kind of learning that matters to all of us. I, I, so I guess I'm, I'm sort of leaving the chat, I mean our conversation right now, with that thought about um, I really don't want to leave the system so that you have to get through all the gates in order to be able to do the, the stuff that matters once you're through. I'd like to see there be spaces opened before legitimization and authorization exactly. so that we're listening to each other in powerful ways. And that is so important, especially for a lot of groups outside of these centers, outside of these structures, so that they get an opportunity to say things and in the process learn and share and collaborate. The idea of learning, sharing, collaboration, collaboration the process itself is killed because we're so focused on the product. And we're also so focused on doing what works for us. It is as if we don't acknowledge it, but we have designed the system for us. And we have designed the system for exclusion rather than instead of inclusion. Um, do we have other thoughts or questions? Uh, we yeah, have one more minute, and then I'm gonna. One really brief practical thought of, I mean, how do we change that? Like, for example, with the with hybrid pedagogy. One of the things that I tell the editors that I work with and one of the ethics that I've taken into the project from the beginning is that when I'm looking at a piece of writing from a potential author, the mm. question I ask is not, is that article going to be perfect for the journal? Am mm. I going to, like, do I need to gatekeep because that article's never going to get to where it needs to be? But mm. I try to look further into the future, like, would the fourth or fifth piece by that particular oh. author mm -hmm. get there? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if I feel like they will, that's where. Then the answer is yes. We'll publish that, and we'll mm -hmm. we'll struggle through it. We'll struggle through the first one, and then we'll struggle through the second one, and we'll get to that fifth piece. If I read the first piece and I say I'm not sure that that author's ever going to get there, mm -hmm. then that's when the person gets an oh, and I can tell you that 90% of the time, 
for me. The no's come when the person is so entrenched in academic language and so entrenched in sort of following a script. Those are the pieces that are actually harder for me to work with than the pieces that are, you know, where I feel like I have to bring someone, you know, bring someone out. It's the person who's already following a script so carefully mm -hmm. that I feel like I can't ever get them back. Mm -hmm. This is so inspiring because I, I kind of tried to address that issue, but you said that in a better way than I ever could. So, anyway. Um, we are at the last... Wait, wait. Uh, yes. Suzanne wants to say something. Oh, yes. Oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. But um, just we talked about you know uh, disruption, talked about changing things in the system, and tying all these to the concept of technology of emergence um, because I'm so fascinated with it. Um, I think we can't define that for people. We can't define that for our students, for you know learners. Um, but we can design environments. You know, we can create spaces, opportunities um, for for that emergence to happen, right? For that experience to happen. And um, I think that's um, where disruption lies in. Like, it's not about the tool. It's not even about the um, pedagogy. It's or the vision. It's about what's happening. You know. As a result of that, um, uh, you know how the user, how the how the learner is interpreting what they have. So I think that's where the you know where opportunities for change um, change lie. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's my Um And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for a great great conversation. Uh, there will be uh, and to our audience, there will be a full video of this uh, discussion. Uh, full, full video recording of this recording on the webinar of the of this webinar available immediately on www.connectedlearning.tv along with other curated content and also information about how you can share um, the videos and uh, with your network. This wraps up the third webinar of July 2015. Um, please feel free to keep the energy going on Twitter using the hashtag ConnectedLearning or and uh, CLMOOC. If you find this conversation helpful, um, please come back for yet another one more of the July series. And uh, of course, CLTV will have more in the future months as well. We'll have the next one, uh, the last of this series, uh, a week from today. Thanks again, everyone. And we look forward to exciting conversations in the future. Thank you. Thank you.